You be seated. This is Exodus 21 through 21. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that, you may, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Well, good morning. Today we're talking about the second commandment, not to be confused with the second amendment. We're not going to be talking about the right to bear arms. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're, we're talking about, we've been walking through Exodus, and what we've been saying in Exodus is that what we want to be, the question we want to be having in our minds as we're studying Exodus is, who is God? What can we learn about God through this, through this passage, through this book, through these different verses and passages in the Bible? And we've said that, you know, we, we've said, okay, so two things that we said we wanted to look for. One is what God says. What does God say? And then what's the other one? What God does. Okay, and we've said that very often we can have our ideas or our images of who God is, and that's when we think of God, we kind of think of something that our mind kind of came up with. And we said, we don't want to do that. We want to be looking, as we look through Exodus, we want to look at what God says and what God does, and we're going to allow that to shape our picture of, of God, okay? So a couple things that we've seen so far about God, that God is like. So first of all, 
a few weeks ago, back in Exodus 3, we found out God's name. When God introduces himself to Moses, he calls himself Yahweh. And he said, before, I made myself known as God Almighty, but now I'm telling you my personal name. And God's personal name, he says, is Yahweh. And this is what's translated in our English Bibles, it's translated as the capital L-O-R-D, Lord. Right, remember we said that, that if you look in your Bible and you see in all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord, then that's because the, the English translators are trying to let us know that this isn't just like a regular God or a regular Lord. This is the capital L-O-R-D, Lord. This is Yahweh. And we said that the word Yahweh in the original Hebrew, it literally means I am that I am. Okay, I, I am that I am. And we said that basically what God's saying through that is that God just is. You might ask the question, well, when was God created? Well, he, he wasn't created. He, he just is. How long is he going to be around? Well, he, he just is, right? He, he, is, he is that he is. And what, that's trying to, what God is trying to help his people at that time and then us today understand by, by telling them that name and what that name signifies is that God is the one, he is the creator of all things, He's the creator, but he, he himself is not created. Okay, so there's the creator and then there's the creation. And we said that there's, there's two, there's really, when you get right down to it, there's only two categories of things in the universe. There's God and then there's not God. Okay, and, and God is in the category all by himself. He's holy, he's set apart, right? He's the, the capital L-O-R-D, Lord. Okay, and then, a couple weeks ago in Exodus 19, we saw that God wants to make, that God makes a covenant with his people. And we said that a covenant is basically a formal partnership where God says that the God, you know, from the time he created Adam and Eve, he's been intent on being in partnership with humanity. And, you know, the partnership, when, when God describes the partnership in Exodus 19, it's really interesting. He says, he doesn't say, okay, guys, you know, here's a bunch of rules. If you can keep these rules, then, you know, you can be my people. That's not what he says. He says, look, I've already saved you. <laughs> he doesn't say, okay, you're in Egypt, you're slaves. Now here's 10 commandments. If you can do these things, you know, I'll take you out of Egypt. It's, the partnership starts with God rescuing his people. And then the 10 commandments in Exodus 20, it starts with, look, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who has saved you. So it's all based on grace. And so the partnership kind of works like this, and it's, it's a little bit funny when you think about it. Well, not funny, but it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's really hard to wrap our mind around. That God's basically saying, okay, you know, God, God's part in the partnership, you know, a partnership, you have, you know, he has his part, we have our part. God's role in the partnership is basically to give us everything. <laughs> That's God's role in the partnership. Like, wouldn't you like to be in that type of partnership? I'm just going to give you everything, I'm gonna keep on giving you everything that you have and everything that you can't even imagine, I'm just gonna keep giving and giving and giving. Okay, that's God's role in the partnership. It's, it feels very often like a one-way partnership. Um, but he, what he says is that God has, saves us and he is our God. And what he says in Exodus 19 is that if his people want to continue experiencing the blessing of being in a partnership with God, then their role is to obey him, okay? So God saves us, God blesses us, and our role, if we wanna to continue to experience his blessing, 
is to obey him. Now, that kind of leads to a really obvious question, right? It kind of leads to the question, okay, if God is blessing me, he saved me, you know, he gives me everything, and my role is to obey him, well, then what are you naturally thinking? Well, what are the rules? What am I supposed to do? What are, what are the commandments? So, you know, if, if I'm supposed to obey you, you know, what are the commandments? And so then in Exodus 20, which is where we are today, um, we get the Ten Commandments, which is basically God saying, this is what it looks like to live in a partnership with me. This is what it looks like to experience my blessing in a relationship with me, okay? So last week, David started us off with the Ten Commandments and talked about the first commandment. And really, so all of the commandments are, are connected. You know, you, they're really inseparable and they kind of bleed over into each other a lot, but especially the first two commandments. The first two commandments are really, you know, they're, they're very closely connected. And essentially, what we find out in the first two commandments is that God is not, remember, we're in partnership, we're in a relationship with God. What we find out in the first two commandments is that God is not interested in an open relationship. Okay, do you guys know what an open relationship is? When you say, okay, you know, you know, we're married, but we have an open relationship. So she, you know, she has somebody on the side and I have somebody on the side and that's okay. You know, I'm happy for her. She's happy for me. And, um, but we're still married. We still live together. Um, and, you know, God, God's just kind of old fashioned, right? God is not interested in an open relationship. And what it says in verse four, look at this in Exodus 20, verse four and, and five, as he's talking about this, he says, for I am the Lord, the capital L-O-R-D, Lord, your God. He says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. What does that mean? Well, it, it sounds, we, we think of jealous in a negative sense, but sometimes jealousy can be appropriate, right? If you're in a committed relationship, if you're in a marriage like I am, well, and then, you know, I, I can promise if, if, if my, if my, so if I had an affair, my wife would not be okay with that. She would be a jealous wife and nobody would blame her for that. And if my wife wanted to sleep with somebody else, I would be a jealous husband because it's an exclusive relationship. And I want her to give all of her love, I want her to give her body, give herself to me, and I want to give my body and myself completely to her, right? And that's kind of what God's saying, that God is a jealous God, just like I'm a jealous husband or Lindsay is a jealous wife. Not in the sense that like, oh, I saw you, you know, smiling when you talked to that guy, you know, what's going on there? Not, not that type of jealous, but in the sense that it's an exclusive relationship. And God's saying, I'm not interested in just being one of your lovers, I'm not interested in just being one of the people or the things that you worship. I want all of your worship. I want all of your love because I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Okay, so the first two commandments are really kind of spelling that out, that God is not interested in open relationship, that God is a jealous God. He wants all of our worship. And so the first command that David talked about last week is all about who we worship. Okay, who are you supposed to worship? You shall have no other gods besides me. And what he's saying is that you can't, you can't, if you're in an open relationship with God, then you don't really, you don't really get it. 
Um, he's saying you can't say that you are worshiping God if you're also worshiping Baal or if you're also worshiping Vishnu or if you're also worshiping money or, or health or family or your job or, or something like that. Okay, it's about who you worship. And the second command that we're talking about today, first command's about who we worship. The second command's about how we worship, okay? And what we're gonna see, and this is interesting, what we're gonna see is that God, God not only cares that we worship him exclusively, God also cares that we worship him only in the way that he tells us to worship him. Does that make sense? He cares not just about who we worship, but about how we worship him. So in verses four and five, I'm gonna read that real quick. Exodus 20, verses four and five. So how does God tell the people to worship him? He says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay, so he's saying, don't make, don't make an image, don't make a likeness of anything in heaven or on the earth or under the earth. So what's going on here? Basically, at that time, and you know, still today in many cultures, but at that time in Egypt where they had come from, in Canaan where they're going, that the people they had, they were polytheistic, they had lots of different gods, and you know, they... They wanted a God that they could touch, that they could feel, that they could see. And so what they would do is they would make statues for their gods. So you had the fertility God in Egypt, and then you would make, um, you would make a statue of a bull. And you would bow down to it. And you'd say, oh, we worship the fertility God. You know, please give us healthy children or, or, or something like that. Okay, they would, they would take something, you know, whether it's the sun in the sky or a star or, or, or something like that, and they make an image of it, they make a statue of it, or, or an animal or a person. They make a statue of it, and they would, they would bow down to that, and they would worship that statue, okay? So, and God's telling his people, he's basically telling them, hey, if you wanna worship me, if you wanna worship me, you can't worship me like the Egyptians worshiped their gods. You can't worship me like the Egyptians worshiped their gods, okay? So, okay, so here's the question. Why is this such a big deal? It, it kind of seems like, is God just sort of being a prima donna? You know, like, oh, you have to do this and that. Like, wh wh why does God care so much, not just, isn't it enough that they're worshiping him? You know, wh why does he care so much that they worship him without making an idol or without making a statue to represent him? Well, remember before, when we, at the beginning, we talked about that God is the capital L-O-R-D, Lord. That he is the Lord, that he is the creator himself, that he created everything, and his, his creation is down here, and he is up here. And this is the, the creator-creation distinction, that God created everything, but he himself is not created. He, he just is that he is that he is, right? And basically what happens when we make a statue, when we say God is, you know, God is glorious and the stars are glorious too, so we're gonna make a statue of a star and we're gonna bow down to the star. Basically what you're doing when, when you do that is you're blurring the lines between the creator and then his creation. 
Okay, God's in the category all by himself, and you're blurring the lines between the creator and the creation. And before long, we start, when we think about God, we, we forget how holy he is. We forget how powerful he is because we think of him like a cow or like a star or like a person, like a human or like Pharaoh or, or, or something like that, right? And, you know, this might have been kind of a bummer for the Israelites because, you know, they might have been thinking, okay, it would be great to have a God that we could touch, that we could feel, that we could see. And, you know, in a few chapters, in, in chapter 32, they, they break this command. They, they, make, they get kind of antsy. They're not sure where Moses is. They're not sure what's going on. And so they, they break the second command. They, they, make, they take all their gold. They make a, a statue of a, of, a gold, of a calf. And then they, they bow down and worship it. But what's really interesting is that they're not worshiping. They're, they're not saying, okay, Yahweh has abandoned us. We're going to go back to the Egyptian gods. That's not what they're doing. And we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but what they, what they say is, oh, this, here are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. So they're trying to worship the Lord. They're trying to worship Yahweh, but they're worshiping him by making him out to be like a, like a golden calf. And God is not pleased with that. You know, God, God doesn't just say, well, at least they're trying. <laughs> he, he's, not, he's not amused by that. He, you know, he's, he's angry, and we're gonna talk about that in a few weeks. But when we make an image or a statue, we say, this is, this is we'll, you know, we can't see God, so we'll just bow down to this. What we're doing is we're insulting God because we're making him out to be a part of his creation, and he's not, right? So another way to say this is that in, in the first command, if we break the first command, what we're doing is we're kind of bringing we're bringing something that's a part of creation, you know, our, our job or, or food or something like that, and we're, we're, we're lifting it up too high and putting it in the position of God, putting the creation in the, in the position of the creator. Does that make sense? And what we do when we break the second command is we're taking the, cre- we're taking the creator or we're trying to take the creator and we're bringing him down to the position of creator uh, or, or of, of creation, and that's, both of those are insulting to God because only he is the creator and he himself is not created. So he wants us to remember that he is a holy God, that he is the creator, but he himself was not created. Okay, so what does all of this have to do with us? You know, this sounds, um, you know, there's, I think we live in a diverse part, a diverse enough part of the country that there probably are some, some people that would be our neighbors that, have, that would have physical idols, would have a statue, um, you know, Buddhists or, or Hindu neighbors and friends that might have a, a statue, a physical statue that they worship. But I'm guessing that most of us here probably, probably don't. Well, what does this look like for us today? Well, how does God, remember the second command's all about how we worship God. How does God tell us to worship him today? And remember, we can't just kind of all willy-nilly say, why, well, you know, I, I like to connect with God like this, or I like to, you know, I experience God when I blank. You know, we, we can only, if we wanna honor God, 
we want to be in partnership with him, we have to worship him the way he's told us to. Anyway, it's really interesting. We talked about, you know, a few minutes ago, this idea that it's a little bit of a bummer, right? You can't, you can't make an idol. You can't make a statue because, you know, we, we it, wouldn't it be nice if you could, wouldn't it be nice if you could actually see God? Wouldn't it be nice if you could actually touch God? Wouldn't it be nice if you could share a meal with God? If you could give God a hug? But God's the creator, and he's not creation. God is spirit. So, so it's impossible, right? Because there's nothing in the universe, in the physical universe, that is an accurate representation of God. So what are we going to do? Well, this is kind of the mindset that Jesus' disciples had. And I want to fast forward a little bit. You don't need to turn there, but I want to talk for a second about something that happens in John 14. So in, in John 14, Jesus' disciples are kind of having, they're kind of wrestling with that same issue. And Jesus is talking to them all about God, about the Father, and saying, well, I'm going to go and, and I'm going to go and prepare. I'm going to my Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you with, with my Father, and we can, we can be together with God. And, and the disciples are wrestling with this. And, and, you know, Philip, one of the disciples, Philip, he was, probably a lot of them were thinking it, but he was the one that was brave enough to, to ask the question. He, he says, Jesus, can't you show us the Father? We, we want to we see him. If you would just let us see God, then that would be enough for us. You keep talking about God. If we could just see the Father, then, then that, would be, that would be enough. And what does Jesus say? He says, he says, Philip, you've been with me so long and you still don't know who I am? Anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. He says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. How can you say, how can, how can you ask, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you know that if you're talking to me, you're talking to the Father, you're talking to God? Don't you know if you break bread with me, you're breaking bread with God? Don't you know if you give me a hug or if you give me a fist bump, it's my, my translation, that you're giving a fist bump to God? He says, I and the Father are one. So Jesus is the only one who is the perfect, he bridges that gap between the creator and his creation. He is the one, he is the only one who is the perfect image. Colossians 1 says that he is the image, he's the image. You know, don't make any graven image. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the, the exact that, that he is the, the exact imprint of God's likeness and of God's nature. In him, all of the fullness of deity is pleased to dwell. Okay, so Jesus solves that problem. So, you know, there's a lot of talk today, and, and I've, thinking about how this applies to us, kind of in the nitty-gritty in our everyday lives, 
there's a lot of talk today about, about what you might call Christian principles. I would say particularly in conservative political circles that you hear a lot, you know, we need to get back to Christian principles or we need to get back to Judeo-Christian principles, right? Have you, have you heard people say that before? And I, I completely agree. I think Judeo-Christian principles are incredibly important. Um, I, I think that if you want, even if you're not a Christian, if you want to live at peace with the people around you, if you want to have uh, more harmony in your marriage, um, then you should apply Judeo-Christian principles, right? But if we want, if we want to be in partnership with God, if we want to be who God created us to be, living in partnership with him, we're going to need more than Christian principles. We're going to need Christ. We can't just worship the teachings of Jesus to love your neighbor and to turn the other cheek and to be generous to the poor and stuff like that. We have to worship Jesus himself. And I think, you know, the, the problem is that the problem is that when you get right down to it, we're kind of very similar to the Israelites. Is it starting to sprinkle a little bit? We're almost done. We're, now we're almost done. Now we have to be almost done. <laughs> um, the problem is that we're kind of like the Israelites. We might not realize it, but we very often, just like they, you know, they didn't, they weren't worshiping God for who he really was. They were making an image of who, of who they wanted God to be or who they thought God was kind of like and worshiping that. And, and we're kind of the same way, aren't we? That very often we're not worshiping the real Jesus. We're making up an idea or an image of who Jesus is and we're worshiping that. Okay, well, let me give you a couple examples. So back around the time of the Civil War, Around the time of the Civil War, there were a lot of slave owners in America who tried to make a case that Jesus supported slavery. Okay? And that's, that's, we kind of chuckle at that today, but they were, they were serious. Jesus supported slavery. And, and that's, that's obviously complete nonsense, right? Why did they believe that? They didn't believe that because Jesus actually taught that he supported slavery they believed that because they supported slavery. And they thought Jesus supported slavery because they supported slavery. And that's what they wanted him to say, so that's what they, what they did, right? And that's, you know, that, that's an insult to God. God is not okay with that, just like he's not okay with the golden calf. In the 1900s, and I would say that there's, there's some of this today as well, there have been a lot of people that have said, you know, Jesus... Jesus is, a, Jesus is a political revolutionary. Jesus is all about stick it to the man. He's all about tear down the system, um, all that type of stuff, right? And the truth is that's complete nonsense too. You know, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He said, I'm not here to overthrow Rome. My kingdom is not of this world. He, he teaches us to submit to the governing authorities over us. But that's complete nonsense too. But why do people think that? Well, they think that because they're political revolutionaries. 
right? They don't think Jesus is a political revolutionary because he is a, a political revolutionary or he teaches that, but because they are. So they're making up an image of Jesus as supporting slavery or as a political revolutionary, and they're worshiping their idea of Jesus instead of worshiping the real Jesus. Does that make sense? Well, so I think two ways that I think we sometimes do this today. The, the first way, I'm guessing, you know, I know none of us are slave owners. Um, probably none of us are political revolutionaries. Um, but what are some ways that we do this today? Well, let me give you two. Number one is, uh, is life coach Jesus. You know, Jesus is my life coach. So what's a life coach? A life coach is somebody who listens, who gives you advice even sometimes, but they're, they are there to help you reach your own goals, right? And a lot of people like to think of Jesus as a life coach. You know, Jesus, he, you know, like, Jesus is here to help me be more successful at my job. He's helped me, he's here to help me reach my own goals, right? And the truth is, you know, and, and then we think, yeah, but sure, Jesus, he's, he's gonna listen to me, he's gonna encourage me, he's gonna, uh, gonna comfort me, but, you know, he, he would never tell me to do something I don't wanna do. He would never, you know, tell me how to spend my money or who to sleep with or, or something like that. That's not his role. He's life coach Jesus. And it's true that Jesus is empathetic. It's true that Jesus is humble, but it's also true that Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And he also says not, hey, if you, if you have anything you want to accomplish, come follow me and I'll make it happen for you. No, he says, if anybody wants to come to me, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and, and follow me. And so another way to say this is, it's an insult when we say, okay, it, it's an insult for us to claim to be a disciple of Jesus and then take his commands as suggestions. Because Jesus, he's not here to be our life coach, he's here to be our king, okay? That's number one, that's life coach Jesus. The second one I wanna talk about is, uh, is, is slave driver Jesus. Slave driver Jesus. So when I was in high school, I had, uh, I had a basketball coach. Um, and he wasn't an actual slave driver, but sometimes it, it felt like that. <laughs> and you know, he was really, he knew a lot about basketball. He taught me a lot of different things. Um, he was, in some ways, a very successful coach. He won a lot of games. But, but sometimes it felt like a slave driver. You know, I was, I was always constantly afraid of messing up because if I did, he was gonna cuss me out. He was gonna call me all sorts of names. You know, I, I, could, never, I could never enjoy playing when I was playing for him because I, I was always just so nervous about screwing up, and then if I made a turnover, then all of a sudden I'm in the doghouse and I'm getting yelled at and all this type of stuff, right? And I would guess some of you have experienced something similar, whether it's from, you know, may, maybe you tend to be that way yourself. Maybe you have a boss who's kind of like that. Maybe you've had a coach or you've had a parent that's kind of like that, okay? And, you know, just like, I would guess that a lot of people hear the life coach Jesus and they say, right on, you know, like, absolutely. That's, Jesus is not life coach Jesus. We're all are against life coach Jesus. But what I wanna say is that 
seeing Jesus as a slave driver, trying to constantly work, thinking that you have to be really good or do a lot of stuff to try to earn Jesus's approval, living in constant fear that he's gonna get ticked at you, that is just as blasphemous, that's just as insulting to Jesus as life coach Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who says, if you are weary and if you're burdened, if you're, if you're weighed down with heavy weights that you're trying to carry, then come to me. And not, then I'll make you run suicides. <laughs> I'll teach you to be tired. <laughs> no, I'll give you rest. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is the one who's tender. First John says that this, and this is love, not that we loved him so much that he said, oh, I guess I have to love them, but that he loved us and gave his son for us. First John says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And anybody who fears, if you're living in, oh, I screwed up, I didn't have my quiet time today, I should have witnessed to that person, but I didn't. Uh, Jesus is gonna get mad at me. I'm a JV Christian now. If you're living like that, then you're living in fear, and you haven't yet been perfected in the love that Jesus gives you. Okay, so what are some ways, you know, maybe you resonate with life coach Jesus, maybe you resonate with slave driver Jesus, meaning that, that you tend to think of Jesus in those ways that are contrary to the way he actually is, or, or maybe something else. But I'd encourage you just to spend a few minutes and just ask, ask the Lord, say, Lord, would you just show me, show me if I see, if there's any way that I'm viewing you that's not true? Am I making an image of you that's more comfortable for me or you know, is more easy for me to wrap my mind around or makes more sense to me? Or am I worshiping the real Jesus? And guys, let me, let, me make a, let me make a plug for reading our Bibles, <laughs> right? This is why we should read our Bibles. This is why we should learn to study our Bibles because we're not just reading our Bibles to learn about what we should do. We're reading our Bibles to learn about who we're worshiping. And that's a big deal because we have to worship God. If we wanna be in partnership with God, we must worship him not only worship him, but worship him as he has told us to worship him, which is through Jesus, and we must worship the true Jesus, not an idea we've created in our own mind about Jesus. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for, we thank you for giving yourself to us. We thank you that you didn't give part of yourself to us, that you gave all of yourself to us. And Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here. Would you um, help us to see you the way you truly are? God, if there's, if any of us are insulting you by trying to earn your, your approval through our good works, or if we're insulting you by taking your commands as suggestions, would you just show us that, God? We know that you don't, you're, even if we are taking your commands as suggestions, you're not gonna, you're not gonna chew us out. You wanna, you wanna lead us to repentance through your mercy. So Father, I pray that you do that today in each and every one of our hearts. 
And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.